Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Atlantic Council's Melinda Herring says Ukraine must prevail. Canada's chartered professional accountants have a new fraud survey, and CPA Mandeep Mann says younger Canadians are targeted the most and need to be careful. The Institute for Canadian Citizenship CEO Daniel Bernhard says fewer permanent residents wanting to become full citizens should be a wake-up call for all Canadians. And University Canada West professor Eli Sopo thinks the RCMP needs a lot more than a new commissioner to fix its structural problems. So, let's get started. Time to turn our attention to something we've seen a lot on television over the last couple of days, the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Here to talk more about it from Washington, D.C. and the Atlantic Council is Melinda Herring, a senior fellow uh, at the Atlantic Council. Melinda, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Nice of you to join us. I'm looking at the Atlantic Council website, and one of the headlines is, one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. releases new sanctions, and China steps in with a, quote, peace plan. Let's talk a little bit about this. It's on your website, and I'm curious what you made of the intervention and the ongoing. It appears they're going to be uh, seriously intervening at every curve in the road. China's involvement, not quite suddenly, Melinda, but quite recent and quite intense. What do you make of it? Sterling, this is a big deal, and everyone's got their eyes on it. So the Chinese are playing a double game. They're talking about peace. They've released this new peace plan, If you dig into it, Russia is not the aggressor, which is obviously a big problem for the United States and for Western allies of Ukraine. Sure. Uh, But the the other issue, though, is that China is now talking about giving lethal aid to Ukraine. And the war uh, is going to to come down to which side can uh, give ammo faster. So if the Chinese are giving the Russian ammunition, that's going to be a big deal. A lot of military analysts are calling it a game changer if it happens. Right. And, and uh, because the Russian supplies are becoming depleted, uh, it's not that they, can't, they don't have any cash to buy more, but their, their supplies are limited. So they need, they're looking for resupplies. Is this going to work out in Russia's favor just in terms of ammo, Melinda? You know, if the deal happens, yeah, it, it's a big deal and it could really change the, the tempo of the war. So the thing that I would be watching, though, this year is 2023 is expected to be a year of Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yes. So before the, the year, you know, a year ago, Russia held 7 percent of Ukraine. And that's a that's a heavy chunk. And then at the height of, of last year, they held 22 percent. But Ukraine has taken about a third of that back. And Ukraine needs these heavy weapons. We've all been reading about the tanks, the leopards, the Abrams, Mm -hmm. and they're waiting for these to arrive. And they haven't arrived in time. So Ukraine has not been able to push and take more more land. So it's really a race to resupply. Some people, some generals are saying it's it's not a stalemate, but it's a slugfest. So it really comes down to which side gets the resupply first. Melinda, I want to talk about sanctions because you're talking about that on the Atlantic Council website, too. But first, we need to talk about planes. President uh, uh, Zelensky of Ukraine is asking the United States and other uh, NATO allies for fighter jets. And uh, there is an enormous reluctance on the part of all involved, including America, on supplying this asset to Ukraine. What's the snag? What's the holdup? Russia, of course, is saying, oh, any planes and you've escalated this whole thing into a whole other level. Is that what's holding NATO back? So 
The, the, the Russian complaint is not what's holding us back. There is a fear in the White House, in the, the American White House, about escalation. And, and they, they keep telling themselves, the White House keeps telling itself that if we send heavier and heavier weapons, including planes, that the Russians eventually are going to use nuclear weapons. Right. And, and you know, most people don't think that's true, but you, we're self-deterring. Uh, one of the issues, though, is it takes about a year to train Ukrainian pilots on Western systems. Mm-hmm. So the Ukrainian argument is, OK, fine. If you can't approve it now, start training our boys on your systems now so that as soon as you get political argument. But just in terms of what's going to shape out, I think we're going to see the Brits and the Poles stick their neck out again like they did on tanks. And that's going to put pressure on the United States and on Germany to do the right thing and send these planes and get the war over as soon as possible. Just at one big point, uh, Sterling, time is not on Ukraine's side. Right. There are many, many more Russian soldiers that have their economy is doing much better than the Ukrainian economy. So the sooner we can get the weapons to, to Ukraine and in this, the better it is for Ukraine, the better it is for the West the better it is for Canada and for the United States. But let's talk about the you, the Russian economy and the fact uh-huh. that they are still in what would con- be considered, at least from an outside perspective, a fairly robust s- shape. And one of the stories that's on your website this weekend, Melinda, sanctions alone won't defeat Russia in Ukraine, but they're having a bigger impact than it might seem. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because Russia at least is putting up a brave face in, 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 in the wake of all of these sanctions. Sure. There's been many packages of sanctions. And it's interesting, if you go and talk to ordinary Russians who live in Moscow, they'll say that you can live a life without knowing, you can pretend that the war is not happening. Um, there's some restrictions on what you can do. Uh, but, you know, you can pretty much turn a blind eye if you're, if you're middle class in Moscow. Uh, and that the sanctions really haven't bid very much. But we know that Russia hates them and wants them removed. And they push for sanctions relief, you know, at any possible time that they can get it. So I I expect the EU and the U.S. to uh, continue to amp up the sanctions. Uh, But, you know, the Ukrainian economy has fallen between 30 and 40 percent. It depends on which estimate you use. And the Russian economy uh, still continues to grow in spite of these sanctions. Does it surprise you living in Washington, D.C., to see the amount of resistance uh, by elected officials in the United States to the continuing American uh, involvement in Ukraine and the enthusiasm the White House and most of America shows towards Ukrainians? Uh, There is still an element, mostly Republican, who are very much uh, against any uh, uh, increase in aid, and some of them going to to say that they should start pulling back. What do you make of that? So, Sterling, I think it's troubling that that some members of Congress are uh, going out on a limb and saying things that they've turned Ukraine into a political football. Ukraine is not a political football. It is a real country. It is a a, a country with with more than 40 million innocent people who did nothing wrong. Uh, And they deserve our support and ongoing attention, uh, you know, for that reason alone. You know, you can talk about the the, the bigger arguments, but from a human perspective, you know, that's why they deserve our, our attention. And if Putin isn't stopped uh, in Ukraine, that he's going to move on to Europe and it's going to be much, much more expensive for Canada and the United States uh, because of our NATO membership. Uh, you know, there's a lot of arguments you can go through. But, you know, just to zoom out a little bit, uh, the bigger perspective is that 65 percent of Americans, Republicans and Democrats, support uh, American assistance to Ukraine, sure, yeah. even if it means extending the war. So, yeah, there's there's things to worry about on Capitol Hill. Uh, and honestly, Sterling, the arguments that, that I would make, uh, you know, just as a, as a as an analyst, don't 
resonate with, with that part of the Republican Party. And I find that really troubling. So uh, if there is, you must at least acknowledge, a certain degree of Ukraine fatigue beginning to set in. Uh, we notice it here in Canada. And again, it's, it's it, to be expected, it's over a year now, Melinda, since this whole thing has begun. Uh, and, and there is concern that that could turn into something uh, negative in terms of the official support for Ukraine's efforts. So I think the support in the United States is really solid. And I'm going to go back to that Gallup poll. 65% of Americans said all systems are a go this year. And that number was consistent with last year. Are, the, are there partisan differences? Yes, I, I do worry about them. Uh, but support for Ukraine has been a bipartisan affair since 1991. We just had a huge rally on Capitol Hill yesterday. Mm-hmm. You see uh, visible signs of support everywhere. So I think U.S. support, as long as President Biden is in power, is not going anywhere. And final question to you, Melinda, and we're grateful for your time on a Sunday morning. Uh, in terms of uh, the ongoing support, Putin keeps saber rattling. Every chance he gets, he sort of leans back towards the nuclear option. And this is what is causing, as you say, the sort of self-deterrence that's being imposed by the United States on its participation levels. Uh, you say the Brits probably a little more going to be a little more generous and a little faster off the mark to show more support, to show greater munitions-type support. Uh, uh, is there concern, though, that uh, that Putin's serious? Uh, because the saber-rattling's been going on for decades. In, in that sense, it's just more of same. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the bigger points is we shouldn't fall for it. So it's interesting to study Putin's responses and his narratives. He's got about four different narratives he goes to, he runs to, when he's not doing well in the battlefield. And he loves to threaten the use of nuclear weapons. Right. And we should not take this lightly. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to belittle that. You know, it, it, it is serious. It is real. Russia is a nuclear power. But the likelihood of him using nuclear weapons is very, very small. And these would be tactical nuclear weapons. They would be used probably on the Ukrainian battlefield. Uh, and he's got one shot at it. And I think the important thing to remember, Sterling, the thing that, that uh, gives me a lot of comfort is the United States is not the only power telling him not to use nuclear weapons. So other other countries that he does listen to, the Chinese don't want him to use it. Right. The Indians don't want him to use it. You know, if he uses nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons haven't been used you know, since World War II. Right. Uh, and that would change the world fundamentally, not just uh, with Russia, Ukraine. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why he's not going to use nuclear weapons. Interesting stuff. Melinda, great to have you on the program this weekend. We very much appreciate your time, as I said, on a Sunday and hope to have the opportunity to speak with you again. Pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for highlighting. I really appreciate it. As scammers and cyber criminals become more cunning and sophisticated, many Canadians are falling victim to financial fraud. And surprisingly, younger Canadians are the most at risk. So says the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada's latest survey, which shows the age group reporting being a victim of at least one type of financial fraud in their lifetime is highest in the 18 to 34-year-old brackets. Here to talk more about it from the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada is CPA Mandeep Mann, who is joining us from here in Vancouver. Mandeep, good morning. 
Good morning, Sterling. How Good. are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I know you're a volunteer with uh, CPA's Canada's Financial Literacy Program, so it's really good of you to take a few moments to be with us this morning. Let's talk, first of all, about f- the fraud, the type of, of crime. I talked in my intro about falling victim to financial fraud. What, what, what do we mean by that? What sort of cyber crimes are we talking about? That's right, Sterling. So what we found in our survey is that a lot of this is online crime that's taking place. So if you have a credit card, if you have a debit card, you are sort of subject to all of the the frauds that are occurring right now out there. So it's things like impersonating your personal information in order to steal from you, essentially. Uh, So the phishing expeditions, those bogus emails that you get uh, sort of randomly dropping into your email box, uh, attempting to look like one of your creditors and demanding payment or more information, that's a phishing expedition. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, yes. So it could be a text message, it could be a phone call, it could be an email. Oftentimes we're so distracted, we're in the age of distraction these days, that we would, you know, accidentally click on a link or accidentally respond to a inquiry, not realizing that it's not a legitimate story. Mandeep, we had Jillian Pranky, the uh, CRA Assistant Commissioner in charge of taxation for this year, yesterday on our program, and she talked about uh, one of the, the scams going on, and she reminded our listeners, and this is important, the Canada Revenue Agency never ever sends out a text with a link attached. So if you receive a text from someone purporting to be a representative of of Revenue Canada and it contains a link, the Commissioner of Revenue Canada says, delete the text immediately, do not open the link. Pretty good advice, right? Exactly. I mean, whenever you get that kind of text where it's from an unknown number, always question the legitimacy of suspicious text messages emails or phone calls. The best thing you could do, honestly, is don't respond. Yeah. Or just so let's talk about younger people. Uh, I suppose the surprising part about your findings in this CPA survey, Mandeep, is the fact that younger Canadians are the most uh, the uh, reporting to be the highest number of victims of cyber crime these days are the ones that have grown up with this technology. They're supposed to be more tech savvy than all the rest of us combined. So I suppose the rest of us are just a little surprised by this. Yes, yes, definitely. I was surprised to see that same statistic, Sterling, just as yourself. It's a comfort level, right? This generation grew up with iPads in their hands from a very early age. Right. They're fine a lot more for entertainment, for work, for socializing. So sometimes that tends to, you know, uh, not make them look twice, not realize that maybe this website doesn't look legitimate, all of that type of stuff. Uh, But yes, it is a shocking statistic and uh, one for this age group to be very aware of. And one other thing that that came up in in, uh, the survey, or at least in terms of background for the survey, is free Wi-Fi. Uh, A lot of us take that sort of for for, for granted and and get a little disgruntled if we go somewhere and and attempt to to get a a Wi-Fi connection. It's not, what's going on here? No Wi-Fi? I'm not coming back here. But free Wi-Fi is also a bit of a trap, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. It's definitely convenient, but it leaves us vulnerable because it's not always the safest bet. I would advise, you know, if you're doing something uh, personal, like your banking, it's best to do it at home. It's best to use a secured network. Uh, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but uh, if you're 
out there using free Wi-Fi, not the safest bet for your banking, things like that. Right. And how frequently would the accountants of Canada recommend we routinely change our passwords? Uh, we don't have an official recommendation, Sterling, but um, I would say, you know, as, as frequently as possible, particularly if you, you know, dealt with something or a transaction or an individual that's a little bit sketchy, you might think your password is uh, compromised and change it as frequently as you feel that you need to. Um, always use a secure site. You know, web pages can be used to clone um, uh, clone cloned websites, conceal your personal information. Yes. Always for a, uh, a lock symbol in the address bar of the web page that you're browsing. And as well, you can use a VPN, a virtual private network. And that's something that, uh, surprisingly, a lot of people who should be using it don't. And is that is it an expense that that, that keeps people from uh, going to the virtual private networks, the VPNs? Uh, as far as I understand, Sterling, it, it's not always uh, very expensive. I believe some of them are relatively inexpensive. Yeah, uh, a, a few dollars a month. Um, it's just something that people are not used to. Similarly, uh, individuals doing online banking, they don't use uh, automatic text notifications or email notifications, which would authorize the transaction that they're doing. So these are all great tips to protect ourselves. So what about uh, you, you receive a text or an email that looks a little dodgy and you do a little homework on it, you realize, now this is bad stuff, this is phishing, these, these are the bad guys in my inbox. Well, besides yeah. de- wanting to delete the thing immediately and get rid of it, should you report it? And if so, to whom? Yes, definitely reporting it is number one, because if it doesn't get reported, it doesn't get uh, publicized, and then the rest of us don't know about it. Okay. You can report it to your local police department. You can report it to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Definitely report it to the institution that's being impersonated as well. So that might be your bank. Ah, okay. And the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre is a is a location and a destination and a terrific website that, unfortunately, Mandeep, not a lot of Canadians know about. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of important information on there. They publish, I believe, uh, what's called a little book, Little Black Book of Scams. And that updates Canadians on exactly what's going on out there and what to protect themselves from. Well, good information for a Sunday morning. We do appreciate your getting up early, Mendeep, to join us with this important conversation. Thanks ever so much. Not a problem, Sterling. Have a good day. The government of Canada has said it wants to boost immigration by adding 1.45 million permanent residents over the next three years, starting with 465,000 this year in 2023. The problem, as the folks at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship see it, is fewer of those permanent residents are expressing a desire to become full citizens of Canada. What's the story here? Daniel Bernhard is the CEO of the Institute for Canadian citizenship, hopefully with some answers for us on a Sunday morning. Mr. Bernhard, Daniel, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about the the permanent resident process. How long, for example, Daniel, does a person, uh, once they become a permanent resident, how long do they have to remain at that status before they're eligible to apply for Canadian citizenship? It tends to be a minimum of about 
four years before you can apply for citizenship, some faster, some longer. depends on a few factors, uh, especially how long you've been in the country during that time. Um, But you can do it fairly quickly if you want to. And what we've been seeing in these statistics that we released recently is that the percentage of permanent residents who are becoming citizens within 10 years, so who are kind of rushing to become citizens are saying, I'm in, let's do this um, soon after arrival, is declining. And that's a, that's a concerning sign. You've talked in the lead-in about answers. I think we have more questions than answers at this point, but there's good reason to feel to feel some worry about what this means for the future of our country. Well, the reason that th- you're on the show today, Daniel, is, is our producer, Leila Khadir, with whom you probably had a conversation or two, is a, a very proud new Canadian. She just received her Canadian citizenship but in the last couple of months and just is beside herself trying to understand why someone would take a pass or even a pause on the opportunity to become a full Canadian when it, when it presents itself. So what do you find? These are statistics Canada numbers that you're looking at, and they're a 40% decline in citizenship uptake over the last 20 years. Any idea why, Daniel? So I'm sure there are several factors. I mean, the first thing, though, is that we're only just beginning to look at this now, and I think that speaks to how Canada has sort of taken... Uh, immigrants for granted over so long. We've just assumed that everyone wants to come here and be a citizen. And now we're realizing, actually, that may not have been true and it may not be true for a long time. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's high time for us to wake up and, 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 and investigate the reality of the situation. In terms of the factors that contribute, I think there are a number of things. Um, you know, some countries have added newer and tougher restrictions on dual citizenship. Uh, there are, you know, application fees can be very expensive. Processing times can be slow. Uh, underemployment is a big issue that we hear about from a lot of newcomers. And I think that one of the things that Canada needs to realize is that the caliber of newcomers who are arriving in this country have changed a lot. When my parents came, they spoke very little English. One had a high school degree degree yet. So everything for them was future possibility. Everything was up. They didn't expect to own a home or have a senior job or anything like that. Today, we're getting people with advanced degrees and credentials. They were homeowners in the country of origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had, they had you know, much better lives. And so they are now coming with different quality of life expectations. And you talk about taxes in your, in your lead-in, housing costs, childcare costs, the same issues that affect all of us affect immigrants too. And many are wondering whether, in fact, the decision to come to Canada is, in fact, a step up. I think that's that's a matter of concern, and we can't just take for granted that people from around the world will just always want to come here and be on our team. we got to keep renewing that promise. That's the message in this for me. Well, it's really an important message, and you're quite right. You know, when you stop and think about it, I mean, in terms of taking things for granted, we Canadians are notorious, Daniel, for taking stuff for granted, including the assumption that given a possibility, anyone anywhere else on planet Earth would immediately move to Canada given half a chance. And you talk about an employment challenge for newcomers to Canada. It's interesting and kind of ironic, Daniel, that if they're experiencing employment difficulties, it's it, the irony is that they're, the doors have been opened even wider to more immigrants because we have a labor shortage and employment problems. So that to have people come to the country and to ostensibly solve that labor shortage problem, and they in turn experience employment issues and difficulties, it's, uh, it, it's really confusing. Confusing. I would imagine, at very least, quite confusing for newcomers. Well, it's it's not an issue of unemployment so much as underemployment, right? We have we have people who come who were senior executives, for example. They were accountants. They managed 
inches um, for getting, you know, doctors and nurses and other licensed professionals. And now they come and they're being asked to do entry level or junior jobs. Right. I think that's part of the difference that people are finding that their skills and experiences are not appreciated. So how is it possible that employers say we have this lack of skilled labor, we need more people, and yet we have these, you know, experienced immigrants driving taxis proverbially and literally uh, that's a kind of disconnect that exists in the economy that that is really problematic and i think this strikes to the core of the issue yeah this is a problem for newcomers this is a humanitarian issue it's hugely discouraging and disappointing for them but this is a problem for the rest of us daniel not hire because they can't and can't sell because they can't make proper use of this talent they're leaving money on the table so all of canada is implicated here this isn't just about immigrants it's about canada's future right exactly and i was going to say the ford government in ontario where you are this morning daniel is at least paying a little more than lip service to expediting those credentials from foreign jurisdictions and of course there's a, a match-up that has to take place just because you have a degree for in, in medicine for example from somewhere else doesn't necessarily mean that your 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 status is identical to one who is a graduate of a Canadian medical school. So a make good or an exam or some kind of catch-up test is appropriate, but it's the fact that that doesn't exist in so many provinces and areas in the country. At least in Ontario, they're they're attempting to get something rolling where that process is not only exists in the first place, but actually moves fairly quickly. Maybe. I mean, look, grass is always greener on the other side of the country. I mean, I would say that you know, in Ontario, we have 13,000 people who have a medical degree from another uh, country. Several thousand, an estimated up to 5,000, have already passed their Canadian accreditation exams, and we still don't let them work in the system. We have uh, lineups of over a year for some basic procedures for some people. People mm-hmm. are literally dying because we don't want to put these people to work. They're saying, hey, put me in, coach. I want to contribute to Canada in this way. I've gone back to school. I've done all the certifications. I'm ready. I'm qualified. And we say, no, Uh, it's about money. It's about changing bureaucracy. It's about a number of things. But the point is, it's not just about those doctors. It's also about patients. We are waiting in line like crazy. Huge health because this talent is sitting there and we refuse to put it to work. That's what I mean about this being about Canada and not just about immigrants. I would encourage your listeners to think about this as a matter of key national interest. Canada's prosperity for centuries has been driven by our ability to allow people to come here, not just to live, not just to work, but to build their families and their futures and their businesses as Canadian citizens, to join our team. And if that engine's breaking down, we're going to have real problems for the future. So this is a wake-up call for us to see if we can renew the promise of Canada, our legacy of citizenship that's driven our prosperity for centuries and will hopefully drive it for centuries more. Interesting stuff. Very, uh, very uh, provocative uh, information in terms of uh, uh, a very contented, uh, typically Canadian uh, population needing to know, and perhaps, as you say, quite Bluntly, uh, a country desperately in need of a wake-up call, and this is uh, this is pretty much a, a door rattler, isn't it, Daniel? It is. I, I would just you know leave with one final note, which is that let's not get too carried away. Right. In Canada, we st- over seventy percent of people continue to support immigration, no matter the political party they vote for. Mm-hmm. Um, we continue to be a, a very attractive destination. There are some countries where you can live for multiple generations without being eligible for citizenship. In fact, in Canada, we care about immigration so much that declining naturalization rates, declining citizenship rates, 
are, are considered newsworthy. You want to talk to them? I've done 19 interviews since this was released 10 days ago. So um, the fact that Canadians care about this still gives me hope. We just need to translate that value set, that ethical system into reality. We need to make it true again. But Canada's heart remains in the right place. And I think that's a really important advantage. And newcomers who do like your producer, who did come to citizenship, who, who wants to be on our team, they saw something too. And so let's, let's not forget it's still a great place for immigrants to come. Uh, half of newcomers are still becoming citizens within, well, just under half within 10. The fact that we are concerned about this also says something about our country and where we stand. And in a world of hatred and xenophobia and you know, all sorts of rising problems, that, that's still something positive. So we've got a lot going for us, but we need to make sure we don't take it for granted and we continue to invest and do the work to make Canada even more desirable for newcomers. Because like you say, they don't just need us, we need them. And if we can't make it valuable for these people, they've got options, they're going to go elsewhere and all of us suffer as a result. Daniel Bernard, CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. Very well said, sir, this morning. Thank you very much for saying it too, Daniel. Good to have you aboard today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a fantastic morning. Back in 2009, the National RCMP Change Management Project provided a 168-page review of the culture, structure, and workplace climate of the RCMP. The review offered dozens of recommendations, none of which were followed up on. This is a piece from uh, an article at theconversation.com entitled, Brenda Lucky's Retirement Will Not Fix the RCMP's Structural Problems. The author of the piece is our next guest. Eli Sopo, Associate Professor in the MBA Faculty of Leadership and People Management at University Canada West. Eli, good morning. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Sterling, and great to talk to you again after all these uh, uh, decades. Well, it has <laughs> been a very long time. It's uh, back in your Vancouver Sundays when you used to be uh-huh. on the Rafe Mayer Show regularly here on CKNW. Oh, long time ago. It okay, is indeed. Yeah. Well, good to have you back with us. And uh, let's talk about now, Brenda Lucky, the uh, current commissioner of the RCMP, is leaving uh, within the next couple of weeks. Uh, interesting timing on this, a week or two in advance of the final report coming out of Nova Scotia, which I suspect Eli is going to find the current commissioner. Uh, well, somewhat uh, derelict in her duties. Uh, can we talk about the structure of the RCMP? Because you see it as, as a divided house, because there's the policing culture and the bureaucratic culture. And you see also the RCMP as essentially a ministry of the federal government. That's a lot to chew on on a Sunday morning, Eli. Where you go. Yeah, it sure is. Well, I was with the RCMP before I retired uh, for 20 years as director of, uh, of research and analysis, both here in BC, but then nationally as well. And there's been a succession of, uh, of reports looking into what we call the culture of the RCMP and how it's structured. Over and over again, these reports actually come out with recommendations when nothing is ever done. Right. Here's the problem with it. It's a very, it's the most complicated police structure actually in the world. That's well recognized. And because what we have here uh, is a federal policing service, which looks after the big stuff like organized crime, uh, money laundering, terrorism, all that kind of stuff. 
those people work at a federal level right across the country and internationally. Mm-hmm. Then we have what's called contract policing, where provinces can uh, set up a contract with Ottawa to provide RCMP services. Well, that gets even more complicated because under that, <laughs> the way it works is that if you're a city over 15,000 population, the feds will put in 10%. If you're between 5,000 and 15, well, they'll they'll help help you out with 30%. Now, not to make it too complicated here, but to put it this way, what happens is that it is run centrally in many ways from Ottawa. This is the problem where local municipalities, uh, well, Surrey's going through something like this. Yes, they really are. say they don't have enough control over the way the RCMP is run and structured, and they don't. They really don't. Uh, the fact is the, uh, our, the, uh, the commander for all of British Columbia reports to Brenda, the commissioner, Brenda Lucky, right now. But she reports to the uh, minister, the uh, public safety minister in, Blair, uh, yeah. in parliament, in, in, and he reports to the prime minister. So we get this complicated structure where it's, it's trying to be all things to all people. And every hardworking woman and man of the RCMP who I know out there on the streets and, and working their butts off, they'll be the first to admit that, that they think it's a one big bureaucratic structure. You can't run a police service like you run the junior ministry of the federal government. And that's what they're doing. And that's what they're doing. And it creates problems. Where? Problems with equipment, problems with getting anything from boots to, to weapons and guns and everything else that has to be centralized out of Ottawa. So and this is it. And there's been a lot of uh, discussion from a lot of people saying it's time for this thing to either completely restructure itself or the provinces to take over policing, much like Ontario and Quebec. Right. So, uh, and, and I, you mentioned Surrey, and I suppose the, the big question is for those who are proponents of keeping the RCMP in Surrey, I suppose uh, uh, convenience being a factor, they're already there, so why mess with success it would be the ethic at play there, Eli. But they're also relinquishing a certain degree of control of their own city police, aren't they? Well, they're relinquishing a great deal of control. Say a city like, uh, well, Vancouver, uh, New Westminster, um, a few other couple places, Abbotsford, that, that have their own municipal police service. Well, yes, the taxpayers pay for all that. That's, that's okay. But, well, maybe not. But anyway, the, what it's run by the local community, by the city council, which then uh, also has a police board. On the police board, there's representatives from the city and other people. Not Ottawa. Ottawa doesn't put its fingers into any of that stuff. Right. Yeah. So what, what the problem is, I think, with, with Surrey, I, I don't want to get into that too much, but it's a really a political issue far more than really a public safety issue, I believe. I agree. And, uh, and, and let's talk about the structural problems, because unfortunately, for decades, the structural problems within the RCMP have been handled not by the RCMP as much as by politicians, which is why not much has changed. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, this is it. I mean, one of the things that uh, I was on the National Change Management Committee for the RCMP for two years when we tried to look at this whole darn thing across the country. And one of the many suggestions was have the, if you want to have the RCMP, have the commissioner, the head of the RCMP, report to Parliament, at least to Parliament, like the uh, Auditor General does in Canada. The Auditor General hands off looks at how the government spends its money, and reports to a committee of parliament. Well, here we have the head of the RCMP Police Service reporting to a minister who reports to the prime minister and cabinet. Uh, And that creates all kinds of political problems, everything from harassment complaints 
to how uh, uh, RCMP are, are structured and, and how you have uh, members delivered in different areas. Eli, I've only got a minute left, and I need to talk about culture, particularly the culture of secrecy. Yes, well, the culture is a problem, because interestingly enough, the, the report that was done a couple of years ago was about culture and back in 2009. It's a culture not so much about secrecy, but really about a lack of accountability, you could have uh, a culture is how we do things and what do we believe in and how we treat people. Well, you can have the best rules in the world, but if you don't hold people accountable for the rules and if you don't have good leadership and trained leadership, then it all falls apart. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with the RCMP. Interesting stuff. Eli, great to have you on the program. It's been forever. And let's not <laughs> let's not let another couple of decades slide by before we do this again. It was very productive conversation. I appreciate your enthusiasm and commitment to the problem. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sterling, and stay warm today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.